in over 100 countries in seven different languages to more than a half billion viewers each week. The World Wrestling Federation, the worldwide leader in sports entertainment. He was once one of the most respected superstars in World Wrestling Federation history. The boyhood dream has come true for Shawn Michaels. But Shawn's disastrous mistake at SummerSlam changed everything. Good God! Good God! I can't believe this. A phenomenal champion was robbed. The finger of blame pointed squarely at Shawn. You gotta take out Rob. Shawn Michaels, a piece of crap. It was a travesty of justice. I think Shawn Michaels is a traitor. I think he did it on purpose. If a true test of a man's soul comes in times of adversity, what can be said of Michaels? Either you're with me or you're against me. Take your pick. Shawn Michaels, you're gonna have to look me in the eyes and you're gonna have to pay for your crimes. Rather than face the consequences of his actions, Shawn Michaels can the flame. He is going down in a blaze of fire. In a fleeting moment, Shawn had one last chance to change his destiny. Then he made his choice. I will go ahead and take whatever is coming to me. I condemn you to an eternity of hell. Tonight, one of the most volatile conflicts in WWF history is set to explode. For the first time ever, The Undertaker and Shawn Michaels will face each other one-on-one, -on -one, and you're standing on ground zero. Stridex presents WWF Ground Zero in your house. Hello again and welcome to another episode of the Retro Wrestling Podcast. This is a Retro Wrestling Podcast Extra. I am your host, Intern Alex. This Retro Wrestling Podcast Extra focuses on a pay-per-view that featured Del Wilkes, the Patriot, who passed away June 30th at the age of 59 in South Carolina. Now, the Patriot was a heavily recruited offensive lineman in Columbia's Irmo High School, and he played for the South Carolina Gamecocks. He was only one of four Gamecock consensus All-Americans, the other being George Rogers, Melvin Ingram, and Jadavion Clowney. He had an outstanding college career, but he failed to make the Tampa Bay Buccaneers in 1985, then gave it another shot in 86 with the Falcons, and didn't make the cut either, so when football was over, he decided to do like a lot of football players do and go into pro wrestling. Started out in Vern Gagne's AWA in 1988 under his real name for a year before he started wrestling under his ring name, The Trooper. He won the AWA World Tag Team Championship with DJ Peterson in 1990, and they would be the final ever AWA World Tag Team Champions before the AWA folded. 
Wilkes also headlined AWA Super Clash 4 with Paul Diamond in a cage match against the Destruction Crew, which was Wayne Bloom and Mike Enos, better known to WWF fans as the Beverly Brothers. Del Wilkes then moved on to the Global Wrestling Federation and became the Patriot, the gimmick that he would pretty much maintain the rest of his career. He won the TV championship there and eventually feuded with an evil twin, the Dark Patriot, who was played by Doug Gilbert. After that feud, he went to the WWF. Then he went to the WWF. He got a tryout match at a Superstars taping where he defeated W.T. Jones. Then he wrestled on Wrestling Challenge the next day against Tom Stone. He returned in November for another dark match. This time he wrestled as the Patriot. He defeated the Brooklyn Brawler. He then did some matches in 92, either as himself or the Patriot, facing the likes of Rick Martel, Paul Diamond, and the Repo Man. He also had some success in All Japan Wrestling, where he teamed up with Jackie Fulton, who wrestled as the Eagle, and won the All-Asia Tag Team Championship. In 1994, Del Wilkes signed with WCW, and he paired up with Marcus Alexander Bagwell to form Stars and Stripes. They feuded with Pretty Wonderful, which was Paul Orndorff and Paul Roma, traded the belts back and forth. Eventually, um, they lost the belts to Harlem Heat on an edition of Saturday Night in January of 95. Wilkes stayed with the company for a few more months before leaving in May of 95. He no-showed the Slamboree pay-per-view, then he returned to All Japan, teaming with Johnny Ace. In the summer of 96, Wilkes formed a tag team with Kenta Kobashi. Eventually, in early 97, Wilkes Kobashi teamed back up with Johnny Ace, and the three formed the stable Git, Global Energetic Tough. Wilkes' involvement with the group only lasted a few months as he left All Japan in July 97, which brings us to this moment in time that we will be reviewing today his WWF run culminating in his title um, opportunity at Ground Zero in your house. He redebuted in the WWF in June of 97. He defeated Rockabilly at Raw is War. And then, of course, he started a feud with Bret Hart because Bret Hart was on his anti-American Heart Foundation run. And the Patriot, of course was a man that stood up for the U.S. of A. He wore a mask with stars and stripes and carried the U.S. flag and even had Kurt Angle's entrance theme. He defeated Hart on a TV match in July after interference from Shawn Michaels. In August, he teamed up with Ken Shamrock to wrestle the team of British Bulldog and Owen Hart. He pinned the British Bulldog for the win, and then he went to challenge Bret Hart for the WWF World Heavyweight Championship at Ground Zero in your house, where we find him tonight. Uh, after this event, he would hang around for a little while longer, but by November of 97, he was gone and off TV and released sometime in early 1998. After leaving the WWF, he retired due to a torn triceps he talked heavily about his steroid use and cocaine use during his career, along with his college football career as well. He was into drugs before he got into wrestling. Spent nine months in prison and for 2002 for forging a prescription due to his addiction to painkillers. He eventually quit drugs, went home to Columbia, South Carolina, 
and he worked at Dick Smith Nissan as a car salesman. He did that for 16 years. In 2007, he had an interview with uh, WACH reporter Justin Keir. He talked about his career, steroid use, Chris Benoit, and other topics. His last two questions involved saying goodbye to the fans and giving advice to youngsters in wrestling. Wilkes urged young wrestlers to learn from our mistakes. He said 50 people whom he once wrestled with in the wrestling sport were now dead. He also did an appearance on Stone Cold Steve Austin's podcast, and then he released his own documentary, Behind the Mask, in 2015. And of course, as I mentioned at the top, he passed away June 30th of this year at the age of 59 from a heart attack. So that's where our review takes us to September 7th, 1997 in Louisville, Kentucky at the Louisville Gardens in front of 4,963 people. The tagline, that's the bottom line. As you see, Stone Cold is on the poster and I believe Austin was, uh, of course, going to have a major role in this pay-per-view. Unfortunately, he suffered a neck injury at SummerSlam from the Owen Hart pile driver. This is the fallout from SummerSlam 1997, where Brett got the Undertaker's belt after Shawn Michaels hit Undertaker with a chair. Uh, You have some teasing of the Kane debut that's uh, going to uh, come about. Uh, you also have a storyline involving Brian Pillman and Goldust, and you have a tag team turmoil match because even though Stone Cold Steve Austin was the IC champ, he was also the tag champ with Dude Love, and so he had to forfeit for some reason the tag belts, but not the IC belt. I don't know the logic behind that, but that is what they decided to go with. And before we jump into the pay-per-view, I rarely do this, but it's a pretty morbid note. Out of the 20 wrestlers, not counting the um, valets like China and other people, eight of the 20 people on this card are deceased, including participants in the first three matches alone, and maybe more. So welcome to Ground Zero in your house. We open with a Shawn Michaels heel turn recap where he decked Undertaker with a chair and helped Brett win the belt. Maybe he just made a mistake. No, no, he didn't, because on Raw, Sean made Undertaker bleed, a rare blood from a phenom with multiple chair shots to the head. So Undertaker was not too happy with this. He tells Sean that he'll have to pay for his crimes. And Sean seems to be indifferent to that. And this is their first one-on-one meeting ever. Can you believe that? Well, at least on pay-per-view, anyway. I don't know if they had any TV or uh, live show matches prior to this. But for the first time ever on pay-per-view, despite being in the company together for seven years, this is the first time Shawn Michaels will face Undertaker one-on-one on a pay-per-view match. And it is the main event, despite not having any title implications at all. This is just about revenge. This is just about Taker getting his revenge. That means that Bret Hart, the world champion, would be second from the top tonight. And I think we could tell from the way that Bret wrestled that match, he was not too pleased with it. Although, the way Sean wrestled his match, I don't think he was too pleased to not be in the title picture either. I don't know what was going on 
but we'll get into it a little bit later on. Vince is on commentary with JR and King. This is towards the end of Vince's run on commentary before he would turn into Mr. McMahon as Bad Blood 97 is his final official pay-per-view as a full-time commentator. Vince mentions all the matches except the WWF title match when they're running down the card. He even mentions the minis and the cruiserweights. Well, he calls them light heavyweights. Uh, King runs over some matches, and finally, JR mentions the title match at the very end. Oh, by the way, the Patriot is taking on Bret Hart. Up first is the Indecent Proposal match, where Brian Pillman has made this very personal. Of all the feuds on this card, this is probably the most heated, honestly. I don't really sense that there's anything more vile, I think, than claiming that Goldust's daughter isn't his, that Brian Pillman is the father, that Marlena is sleeping around uh, with her old flame, Brian Pillman. This is very personal. This is a very um, Attitude Era storyline, and compared to the main event storyline, which was just Shawn Michaels hitting Undertaker with a chair, I think this is the actual feud with the most heat behind it on this card. There's always... A big part of me around you all the time because you know your little daughter, Dakota? She's mine! She's my love child! She's mine! It was so good! Goldust thought the feud was over. For Dustin Runnels, it's no longer about sport. Pillman's challenge and Marlena's acceptance literally threatens everything he lives for. It did bother me. You know your little daughter, Dakota? She's mine! She's my love child! To a man, he must face the unthinkable and quite possibly sacrifice the most cherished thing in his life. with that i mean this is my life this is this is my wife i love her to death and that's not gonna that's not gonna ever change that's not gonna stop there's not a man on the face of this earth that's gonna stop me from loving her and taking care of my family that's a fact and a promise increasing the burden this is not just about man and wife it's about their three-year-old daughter who may be separated from her mother that precious little innocent child to go through those to be feelings that were did. Parent, you know, it's... It was hard. In the deranged world of Brian Pillman, the stakes are just as high. I'll tell you what. You promised to give me one more match. And if you beat me, I'll leave the WWF forever. You're talking about forever, right? Forever. Long time. If Pillman is victorious at ground zero, can one imagine the horror that will develop over 30 days? The innocence of a marriage lost, a mother and child separated, and the deranged antics of a madman about to spin wildly out of control. 
and a great recap package here of everything that's happened between Pillman and Goldust, even Dustin giving an out-of-character, no-makeup uh, interview about it. He says this isn't about just man and wife, it's about a three-year-old little girl. If Pillman wins, he gets custody of Marlena for 30 days, but if Goldust wins, Pillman will leave the company forever. So career versus wife right here to start this pay-per-view. Goldust is out first, no big typical flashy Goldust. He's a more focused Goldust, although he does still kiss Marlena, but I guess that plays into the storyline. Pillman comes out but gets jumped by Goldust. Big chops from Pillman. Goldust stops him with an atomic drop and a clothesline. Corner punches to Pillman, who gets 20 of them instead of 10 because this is personal. Pillman chokes Goldust with his shirt, which doesn't get a DQ apparently. Uh, Pillman didn't have time to remove his shirt before Goldust started beating on him. Pillman gives chase to Marlena on the outside, but Goldust drops him on the steel steps. An ominous line from JR, this could be Pillman's last match in the WWF. Well, it wouldn't be his last match in the WWF, but it would be his last pay-per-view match before his death, the night before Bad Blood in October. He wasn't on the UK card coming up. JR and King argue about the paternity of Dustin's child. King is just convinced that Pillman is the actual father. Pillman tries a bulldog, but Goldust crotches him on the ropes. They walk and brawl up the ramp where Pillman takes a suplex on the ramp, which is just hard to watch knowing all the pain that Brian Pillman was in from his Humvee accident, his fused ankle, and he's taking bumps on the metal steel ramp. Goldust crotches Pillman on a post. Lots of smoke and mirrors here to get Pillman through the match. Goldust doing most of the work as Pillman... Very limited in the ring. Probably never should have stepped foot back in the ring, but he did. Goldust attacks Pillman's leg, and this, of course, gets JR and the commentators to remind us of Pillman's Humvee accident, which, as I mentioned, should have been a career ender, but Pillman was just too determined to continue wrestling and was not was not going to accept a role at the commentary table. Uh, the recent Dark Side of the Ring about Pillman... Uh, talks about this a little bit. Uh, JR gets into it. Pillman blocks a Goldust Bulldog. Pillman back body drops Goldust for a two count. Goldust sucks chance from the crowd, which is odd because he's the baby face in the storyline, but then there are Pillman sucks chance. Uh, they were both light chance because there's not that many people in the crowd, so um, not really not really 50-50 split here. It's pretty unclear who the audience really wants to win. It seems like most of them want Goldust to win. Electric chair dropped to Pillman as Goldust powers out of a camel clutch. Pillman goes to the top rope, but Goldust crotches him again. Goldust throws him from the buckle to the guardrail so Marlena can get a slap in on Pillman. A superplex attempt by Goldust is blocked. Pillman instead misses a missile drop kick and lands on his bad leg. Curtain call. But the ref gets bumped by Pillman's hand, so Goldust can't get to count as Earl was knocked out. Marlena has a loaded purse. She tries to deck Pillman. Pillman instead grabs it, decks Goldust. One, two, three. Marlena is Brian Pillman's for 30 days and nights. Then Pillman drags Marlena off to the back. Goldust goes and gives chase. King, of course, goes and grabs the purse to show to us that it was loaded, that it wasn't just an empty purse. It had a brick inside of it. 
Pillman throws Marlena into a town car and drives off as Goldust chase after it. Goldust then destroys the locker room in frustration and on the Peacock Network, I don't know if this was on the original or not, lots of bleeps from Goldust here as he laments losing his wife to his arch nemesis. And this was a pretty controversial feud. I remember thinking it was kind of messed up at the time, even as a, even as a child watching this. Uh, I remember uh, Pillman having Marlena in, the, in hotel rooms on Raw and stuff like that. I I thought it was, yeah, I was still not sure if wrestling was a work or not, and I thought it was totally legitimate that, uh, that uh, you can put your wife on the line in a match and have her be legally kidnapped, I guess. But this got really, really personal. And then, of course, with Pillman's passing in October, it became even even more strange. They had to keep Terry off TV for a while. There was no real resolution to this feud, as I recall, because at Bad Blood, I believe Dude Love was scheduled to fight Pillman and not Goldust, so this was going to play out a little while longer. This was just um, a really... It was a Brian Pillman angle, for sure. It was shocking. It was Attitude Era 101. This match was okay. Pillman, as I said, pretty limited. Uh, he did the best that he could. Goldust really had his working boots on and tried to make it as easy for Pillman to get through as possible, although they did do that spot on the ramp, which I thought was just in poor taste, but I understand this is a blood feud. This is about family. This is about a wife. So I think the storyline makes the match really good, but I don't think the actual match is all that memorable, unfortunately, for Brian Pillman's last pay-per-view match. But uh, that's what happens. And for an opener to a show, like I said, I thought this was the hottest feud going on that was presented on this card. So to open the card with this match, I thought was a very good choice. And I thought there'd be more follow-up throughout the evening with Goldust or Pillman or or something like that. But at least on, on this version that I saw on, on Peacock, it, it was not uh, followed up on. I don't know if on the original pay-per-view they did check in with, with Pillman and Marlena, uh, but they did not do so here. Up next, the light heavyweight division is getting going here in the WWF. You see WCW had made a, a big splash with their cruiserweights, so WWF had to get in on the action, and there's no finer example of a cruiserweight than massive, massive, massive man Scott Putzky. He's out next, and he's going to take on Brian Christopher because on Shotgun Saturday night, that's right, a feud... From Shotgun Saturday Night is the second match of this In Your House card. Brian Christopher and his father, Jerry Lawler, jumped Scott Putzky on Shotgun Saturday Night. So I almost thought Ivan would be involved in this some in some way, but he was not. Uh, Brian, as he comes out to the ring, he licks his biceps as he enters the ring, which I thought was pretty funny. It's, I mean, Brian, Brian Christopher was no, you know, he was small, but he still was pretty massive. As far as, I mean, you look at the mass on all these guys in the late 90s in the WWF, uh, so licking his biceps wasn't that out of character, but it was still funny seeing Brian Christopher 
doing something that Scott Steiner would be, we you know, do or Buff Bagwell. Now, even though Brian had a lot of mass, uh, Scott Putsky puts him to shame. The crowd starts chanting Jerry's kid before the bell rings because this is, of course, when Jerry had the ongoing bit with Jr. about the paternity of Brian Christopher. Putsky drop kicks Brian out of the ring, and Brian takes his time to regroup. Putsky nearly necks himself on a Hurricane Rana to Brian. Scott Putsky should not be doing Hurricane Ranas. Brian hits a skull-crushing finale to Putsky, but it poses instead of covering him. He follows it up with a released German suplex, and this sends Putsky out to the ring mats. And then Brian hits a corkscrew plancha to Putsky on the outside of the ring, and Putsky completely fucks up his leg, and the match is over because uh, his kneecap was not where kneecaps go. Uh, typically on your leg. So, uh, by default, Brian Christopher wins this match, which he was probably scheduled to do anyway. I'm not going to speculate, but I I would suspect that there was going to be more interference from Jerry and that uh, Brian was going to get the win here. Now, to fill time while the EMTs tend to Scott Putsky, King goes in to congratulate his boy, and then he grabs the mic and tells Scott Putsky, yeah, yeah, it looks like you need to go to the hospital, buddy. Better get him to a hospital. You know what that is, Scott? That's a big building with patients. <laughs> Not too many people appreciating the humor of Jerry the King Lawler. Ooh, that looks pretty nasty. Looks like his patella's been dislocated. It, it is, uh, and that's, uh, we apologize to the... Here's your winner, and Putsky's left leg definitely looked fucked up and he gets stretchered out and there you go that is the end of the second match Uh, not much to say about it really due to the injury to Putsky other than uh, if this was WWF's idea of what light heavyweight should be doing I think they got it a bit wrong for some reason they thought that the stuff that the cruiserweights were doing in WCW should be reserved for the minis and that their light heavyweight division is going to be lighter guys fighting like heavyweights. And that is where WWF got this completely wrong. Outside of Taka Mishinoku, who was awesome, but they had nobody to fight him on his level. So this division was off to a very bad start. It's all about faction warfare next, as it's a triple threat with the Nation, DOA, and the Los Bariquas. Oh, it's not a 12-man match, by the way, uh, as each of these groups had four guys. Oh, no, no, no. It's just one from each. Uh, They play a promo package, and the music they put underneath it is just like a two-minute-long drum solo. It's very long. I'm getting sick and tired of every time I turn around. You're telling me how to conduct my interview and where to do them and how you want them done. If you want them done, you ask me where I want them done at. We are not about this clean, serene environment. This is Beverly Hills. This is Hollywood. We're not about that. We're about the street. And tonight is a street war. And we're going to show you just exactly how that's done. Tonight, I'm going to take Savio Vega and crush out. How are we going to do it, guys? By any means necessary. necessary. Get out. Get out of the way before we knock you out. Oh, 
Vega is gone with three things. My sweat, my blood, and my tears. Esta noche, vengan bien preparado, porque Sabio Vega está preparado para cualquier cosa. Rossi Farouk, ustedes la van a pagar. Boricua, And actually, what doesn't get talked about here is that this is the nation explodes because the three men involved in this match were all originally members of the Nation of Domination. And then Savio spun off, started the Los Periquas, and Crush spun off, started the DOA. And they're the ones fighting Farouk, who was the leader of the nation. So it's the three leaders and the three former members of the original nation. So, But that's not mentioned. Instead, it's just the three leaders of these separate factions that have no connection are going to fight. Triple threat rules are explained. Can you believe that? A relatively new concept here that WWE would totally not run into the ground over the next few years. Totally not. They have really stayed away. This is a really special step, and they've really played it safe. A weird stat that I thought about as this match started, the first three matches on this card all featured a wrestler named Brian, and all three Brians are now deceased. That is weird and sad and not that surprising, but just an odd thing about this show. Farouk whips both men with his belt, a nasty spine buster from Farouk to Savio for two, a power slam from Crush to Farouk for two. Three men trade blows on their knees. Crush puts Savio in a rest hold that allows Farouk to recover, climb to the top and hit a forearm to the back of Crush that breaks up the rest hold and gets a near fall. And it was weird to see Ron Simmons coming off the top rope. I can't really recall the last time I've seen that happening. Just a lot of near falls. The odd man out always breaks the cover and then tries it again. A very boring match. As I said, relatively new concept to WWF at the time, and they had not really structured these things very well. There was a terrible botch neck breaker to Farouk from Savio for a near fall, but Crush breaks the cover. Crush and Farouk double team Savio, first with a suplex, and then both men cover Savio. But the ref can't count because you can't win the match that way, even though we know you can, because Kane and Undertaker pinned Austin about a year or two later, and the ref counted. So it can happen, it just didn't happen here. Heart punch to Farouk from Crush, then a spinning heel kick to Crush from Savio, and one, two, three, the Los Bariquas get a win here. Savio Vega gets a rare win over the other members of the other factions. And I was really kind of shocked by how the ending sort of came out of nowhere and that Savio was the one getting his arm raised at the end, which, by the way, I I realize this is an in-your-house, but where were the other members of their crew? 
it was weird that there was no interference here because the hype was all of these brawls on Raw between all 12 men and uh, the people destroying the motorcycles and the Puerto Rican flags getting broken and all this stuff. And so you would think, well, they're going to show up, obviously. Nope, not at all. Just a 100% clean match and a clean finish for Savio Vega. So it's clear that the Los Periquas will be the dominant faction in the WWF in the years and decades to come. For a triple threat match, I wasn't that impressed by this, and it's probably because the competitors themselves hadn't been in a lot of triple threat matches. The WWF didn't know how to structure them uh, when... One wrestler was out of action. He wasn't even out of view, out of camera shot. He was laying on the ring. It was. It seemed like it was Farouk a lot, usually just laying on the ring uh, mat, like on the ropes there on the on the side. They didn't really do anything special. There was no. They didn't emphasize that triple threats or no DQ in the WWF. I don't think they determined that at the time, um, even though. Farouk did use his belt, but it seems like belts and t-shirts and everything else, suspenders, ties, seems like that's all fair game. I, I rarely see DQs for that. It was weird to see Savio pick up the win, knowing that they had no plans for Los Bariquas. And um, yeah, this was really just a filler match on this show. We get a promo for the Stone Cold Steve Austin Cause Stone Cold said so video, $19.99 plus six bucks for shipping, $25 for that VHS tape, which I believe I rented from like Video Park where I grew up, which was a, a mom and pop video store. I would not have paid $25 for it. He hates being edited. Somebody's going to get there. Well, He's sick of being told what not to say. And he ain't going to take shit anymore. Why you hit the nail right on the head, son. Cause Stone Cold said so. The video. No edits, no censors, just the Stone Cold truth. Witness all the cold-blooded fury that they can't show you on TV. To order, call 1-815-734-1161. The bottom line price is $19.99 plus shipping and handling. Order now. But it does use the famous picture of his WrestleMania 13 uh, bloody face on the cover, so that that's kind of cool. Now it's time for the minis. El Torito, the original one, not the one who teamed with the Cologne or the Los Conquistadors. He's facing Max Mini, who is making his WWF debut, but gets a good reaction from the crowd just because he looks cool. He's only 83 pounds. He's billed as the world's smallest athlete. So if Big Show is the world's biggest athlete, Max Mini is the world's smallest athlete. Tilt-a-whirl head scissors for many and a massive one that sends Torito out of the ring where he hits a Tope Con Hilo through the second rope, of course. Max Mini does. Max Mini keeps Torito in a wrist lock. Torito reverses it, then bites Mini on the ass. Torito lands a couple of nasty kicks to Mini's head. Torito goes back to biting Mini's ass, and then Mini bites Jack Doan on the ass. Hey, that's not cool. Max Mini goes and hops in Jerry Lawler's lap and steals his crown because in Vince McMahon's mind, Minis, um, miniature wrestlers, um, they are children is, is what 
they are comedy fodder, even though even though I thought Max Minnie was one of the more exciting wrestlers on this show tonight. No, he's he's a baby. JR says to King, hey, pretend it's Brian when he was a baby. When Max Minnie gets back into the ring, he gets a big boot from Torito, a power bomb, then a sunset flip pin attempt. Nets Torito a near fall on Max Mini. Mini supercells a lariat from Torito as the crowd has dipped out of this match. They quit caring about it. Big arm drags from Mini, takes Torito outside, and he hits an acai moonsault out to him. He goes upstairs and hits a flying head scissors, tries a victory roll, but messes it up. Oh, man, he botched the finish here. He eventually settles on a sunset flip roll up and gets the win over Torito. And Max Mini is off to a 1-0 start in the WWF. When they go to the highlights of this match, uh, they include the pin and Mini hopping on Lawler's lap. Those were the highlights to Kevin Dunn and the production truck at the WWF. Um, the Minis, I do think there's a place in wrestling for Minis. I think that they are exciting to watch if they're booked the right way, if they're not booked like jokes where they hop and steal the crown from Jerry the King Lawler. I think that you could even have a show dedicated to them on the network, and I think it would do pretty well. I think they're fun to watch. They are exciting when you get good ones uh, in the ring, just like any wrestler. When you have good wrestlers doing cool moves, it's a good product, especially in 97 when the WWF roster wasn't doing all of the uh, tilt-a-whirl head scissors, acai moonsaults, uh, the cruiserweight stuff was not, th- those moves, the Lucha Libre moves were not in WWF. So if you need, if if you want to see them, this was the only way to see them in the WWF. So I thought they could have had a big run, uh, a much bigger part of the WWF. And now I, do- now I actually don't know that it would work as well since... Every wrestler sort of wrestles with all that stuff. Like, I mean, Seth Rollins, not a cruiserweight by any means, can do all the same stuff. Every wrestler wrestles like this pretty much now, unless they are a Braun Strowman, a big man. Uh, they're they're being they're able to do moves like this. You know, hit a Phoenix Splash, hit all the all the kind of stuff that you see the minis do. So. I don't know that in 2021 if it would still be as successful, but in 1997, had the WWE, WWF had a network, this would have worked. Even if they did a Saturday morning show, if they put these guys on Livewire every Saturday, I thought that would have been, I would have loved watching that as a kid. I I, I really enjoyed this, Um, but the way it was presented, I I did not enjoy. We go to SummerSlam where we see Austin get his neck broken from Owen, and he still managed to win the IC title belt. Slaughter, though, puts a stop on Austin coming back to the ring. See, Austin's ready to come back, but the evil Sergeant Commissioner Slaughter won't let him. Austin has to forfeit the tag team titles, but not the Intercontinental belt for some reason. This is never explained why. It just is. JR brings out Dude Love first, who was tag team champions with Stone Cold Steve Austin, which if you had asked me if I remembered that, um, I would have said no. <laughs> I did not remember Austin winning the belts with Dude Love, but also he won them with Shawn Michaels at one point 
and I didn't really, I don't really remember those runs at all. But he was tag team champions with Dude Love, apparently. So Dude comes out, Mick Foley. He he relinquishes his belt, no problem for him. But then Stone Cold Steve Austin's music hits, and it's a massive reaction. Even though this guy's not wrestling tonight, and Jr. is in the ring with uh, the Commissioner Slaughter, and uh, Jr. gets two big middle fingers from his friend Stone Cold Steve Austin. Austin grabs the mic, blow it out your ass, and then he'll stomp Vince's face into the ground if he keeps that look on his face. He wants Slaughter to drop down to his knees to pick it up off the mat, which I don't know if he said drop down to your knees, but it definitely seemed implied that he wanted Slaughter to be in a very vulnerable-looking position. Because he throws his belt on onto the ring and says, pick it up. Just pick it up. And he does so without incident. He lets Slaughter pick up the belt no problem. So Slaughter retreats with the belts. And then JR, poor old Jim Ross, gets a Stone Cold Steve Austin stunner to a massive reaction. Which was funny. Uh, knowing the relationship that Austin has with JR, that JR was chosen to take the bump here, even though Sergeant Slaughter would be wrestling pretty soon if he wasn't already. So it wasn't like Slaughter couldn't take this bump. Um, But there you have it. There is only one Stone Cold Steve Austin. Austin, I wish great... we could have had you come out here in a different. I want you to blow it out your ass. <laughs> Vince, you can knock that stupid looking face, that look off your face. I'll come out there and stomp your ass in the ground. What's that all about? You sit there and look at damn pictures of me getting dropped on my head. I think everybody's just had enough, about enough of it. I don't know who you think you are telling me what I can and can't do. If Steve Austin says he can wrestle, you can damn well believe him, son. And that's in order. You want the little belt? You want it? Yeah, is that a yes or no, jackass? Why don't you drop down and give me 20, you big piece of trash? This is totally disrespectful on the part of Austin. 
totally disrespectful. I'll knock your damn life off. Pick it up. And that's an order. This is your only chance. You pick that son bitch up, or I'll stomp a mud hole in you and walk it dry. You make me sick. You make me so damn sick I want to throw up all over you. The whole damn World Wrestling Federation makes me sick. Say something if you want to say it, fat ass. This is, this is out of line. Steve, I'm sure the fans here would love to see you compete tonight, as would I. There's no doubt about it. I'll always say you're the toughest SOB in the WWF, but the WWF's not gonna let you risk permanent paralysis to wrestle. I hope that your convalescence goes quickly. We wanna see you back in the ring sooner than later. And all I got to say is I hope that you get to be 100% or more than 100% very, very soon. That's from everybody here. And that's exactly right. Let me tell you about a... The Stooges, the future Stooges, uh, carry JR to the back. Owen and Bulldog are backstage. Doc Hendricks asks if Owen is scared of Austin. Owen wants Austin jailed for what he just did to JR. That was assault. Owen's got a point here. And he wants the IC belt stripped from Austin too. Which, yeah, based on what I just saw, he needs to be stripped of the title as well. If You can't just take one and not the other. Uh, Owen's promo ends with that's the bottom line son <laughs> which coming from Owen doesn't sound as great as it does coming from Stone Cold Steve Austin and uh, Bulldog sort of just chimes in it's a load of crap what Stone Cold Steve Austin did to Jim Ross a color commentator a man of his caliber Jim Ross is a very special friend of mine we broke bread together he doesn't deserve that crap but these stupid American people seem to condone it. They encourage it. They want to see him beating up helpless commentators. Well, that's a load of crap. And I personally am going to be lobbying to see Stone Cold Steve Austin not only fined, not only suspended, but he should be jailed. That is assault. He should be taken to jail, put behind bars. Not only should they have stripped him of the tag team belts, they should strip him of the Intercontinental belt, give it back to me where it belongs. And Stone Cold Steve Austin, you should be getting the hell out of the World Wrestling Federation. That's what you should do. And that is the bottom line, son. All right, anything? this, Bulldog and myself are going to go out, kick everybody's butt, and take the WWF Tag Team belts because we truly are the best there is, the best there was, and the best there ever will be. That's right. And right. even though Jim Ross is from Oklahoma, <laughs> he still didn't deserve that, Doc, if you know what I mean. I'll be behind Owen 100% when he steps in the ring with you, Stone Cold Steve Austin. All right, let's get back to ringside. And JR is done, done with commentary for the night. Easy night of work. That's what Austin did for JR. He got him paid for a full night of work, and he only had to commentate through the uh, mini-match, and that was it. Fatal four-way for the tag belts next. Headbangers out first. They get a pre-tape where... They got to go to the MTV VMAs, uh, their interview said, and I seriously doubt that they actually did. 
There's no footage of that on the tape. They just say they were at the VMAs last night. Godwins are out next. They have a pre-tape. They want to slop something. Owen and Bulldog are out next. We've already heard from them. Finally, LOD give their shouty promo. Hawk is going to put both the Godwins' butts in their slop buckets. LOD get their typical Legion of Doom pop with their awesome turnbuckle poses. The fatal four-way rules. Any man can get tagged. If he gets beaten, then his team is eliminated. So, another concept still new to the WWF. Fatal four-ways. Thrasher starts with Henry Godwin. Phineas gets tagged by Thrasher. And he contemplates getting in the ring against his partner, but he doesn't. So, Hog tags in Mosh so they don't have partner-on-partner action here. Mosh drops Phineas, tags in Animal. Hawk lands a right hand while Phineas was regrouping on the outside. Mosh comes back in against Animal. Hawk comes in, press slams Mosh, and then Hawk wants to tag Bulldog, and Bulldog refuses, which is smart, until Hawk just smashes him in the face, and apparently that counts as a tag. So if you just walk up and deck a guy, that counts as a tag. But Owen quickly comes in to take on Henry Godwin. Owen... Hits him with an insiguri for a two count. Animal misses a clothesline to Henry. Takes a dive to the outside. LOD chance for the Road Warriors. Phineas tries a second rope splash to Animal, but Animal gets a boot up. Hawk comes in, cleans house. The Hog Farmers stop the Doomsday device. And this makes the LOD go out and grab the slop buckets, which don't have any slop in them. And they just start wailing away on the Godwins, and this forces Tim White to DQ LOD, the first team eliminated. The most popular team in this match is eliminated first. The Headbangers hit a double-team assisted splash to one of the Godwins and hit a stage dive out to Phineas on the ring mats. Henry Lowbridge's Thrasher out of the ring to slow down the Headbangers. The Hog Farmers get rolled up by both the Headbangers, so the Godwins are eliminated simultaneously. Now it's the Headbangers versus Owen and Bulldog who have barely been involved in this match. USA chance for the Headbangers, since Owen and Bulldog were part of Brett's Anti-American Heart Foundation. Owen and Bulldog run through Thrasher. Delayed vertical suplex to Thrasher from Bulldog, but Mosh breaks the cover. Owen comes in on a phantom tag. The ref didn't see that he never made a tag. Owen comes in on a phantom tag, delivers a neckbreaker to Thrasher for a two-count. Bulldog and Thrasher fuck up a Samoan drop, which looked like shit. Mosh and Owen get tags, and then Mosh runs wild. Owen trips Mosh, but then miscommunication is a spinning heel kick lands on Bulldog from Owen. Owen goes for a sharpshooter, but Stone Cold Steve Austin runs into a massive roar from the crowd. He runs in behind Tim White's back. He gives Owen the stunner and the headbangers. One, two, three. New tag team champions. Whoa. That, my friends, was a stunner. (laughs) The Headbangers party through the crowd in Louisville. And this was the highlight of the Headbangers' career. Their one and only title run was here at Ground Zero 97. This match was okay. I I didn't like the way it was structured with LOD being eliminated first, but they weren't going to do the job cleanly to anybody, so they were going to get eliminated at some point. And you might as well go to the locker room early, I guess. Um, I wish that they had stuck around at least until um, the final three. Maybe not been the first team eliminated, but I think the crowd would have been more hyped uh, for 
for the finish if uh, one of the teams they loved was still in it and maybe had a quick uh, elimination of LOD and then a quick finish between Bulldog and Owen and the Headbangers. So that way they don't have time to be sour on LOD being eliminated and they can get more hyped for the Headbangers surprise win. I just think the finish could have... But, I mean, they had the Austin run in, so that was really good. That I mean, that that was the biggest part of the match. <laughs> that was the biggest pop of the match. So, hey, bald guys looking out for each other as Austin helped two other bald guys win, win, win tag belts that he just had to forfeit. And, of course, a few years ago, Mosh and Thrasher showed up on an episode of SmackDown. So, never say never to a headbanger reunion. We get another promo for the Austin VHS. Mosh and Thrasher continue their party to the concession stand. Hey, everybody, hot dogs are on the headbangers tonight. Not, ew, that that sounds gross. But no, it looks like they're just going to hand out hot dogs to fans, which is a strange way for headbangers to celebrate. I imagine they would want to start a mosh pit or something, crowd surf, something cool like that. But instead, no, they... Went and got hot dogs for some fans that were near the concession stand. JR is backstage basically crying to slaughter like a little bitch. JR said he didn't come to the WWF to get beat up. No, he came to get fired. He got fired a lot from the WWF. <laughs> so that's what JR actually probably could have said there. You know, this, this is not right. It's damn sure not right. And there's damn sure something got to be done about it. Yeah, he's popular. And then you you got to go get the, the public uh, sentiment. Of the We're going to do everything in my power to make sure that doesn't happen again. I, I'm really sorry. Well, I, I, the thing about it is you can't trust a That's for sure. You can't trust him. Don't anybody trust him. You know, and that, that's all well and good. He's a bad son of a gun. Everybody's a 316. They can, three, they can kiss my 316 what they can do. And so can Stone Cold Steve Austin. And I'll tell you something else. You need to tell Vince that this happens again, my ain't gonna be around here because I ain't I didn't come here to get whipped beat up now it's time for the reason we're reviewing this pay-per-view Del Wilkes the Patriot taking on Bret Hart for the WWF title promo package recaps the lame feud between Patriot and Bret Hart Patriot beat Bret on Raw once so he knows he can do it again Del Wilkes has a promo with Sonny who was doing backstage interviewing at this point in 97 the Patriots' stunning victory over Bret Hart a little over a month ago has propelled his confidence and his momentum. Ironically, it may be his patriotic appreciation which paradoxically fuel both his hatred and respect for the hitman Bret Hart. Certainly he has the right to his opinion and to the way that he feels. And I realize I'm not going to change his mind. I'm not going to change his opinion. But I wasn't going to stand by and let him continue to trash uh, our people and our way of life. And especially when he comes here to make his living. This is a country where he has made his fame and fortune basically. Not Canada, but the United States. And I felt like somebody needed to take a stand. And and I realized by doing that, I put a big bullseye on my back. We've faced each other one time. It's one and oh in my favor, in my column. Uh, I'm sure he won't underestimate me at ground zero. I'm sure he'll be prepared, but I've beat him once, and it gives me the confidence to know that I can do it again. It's been done. It can happen again. 
I'm standing here with a Patriot right now who's the challenger for the WWF Championship tonight. Now you already have one win over Bret Hart, but tonight the title's on the line. Bret Hart, I've beat you once, and in my mind, I can do it again. I don't know what kind of plans you've got, what you've got up your sleeve, whether or not you've got the family stashed away somewhere, but I'll assure you this, anyone sticks their nose in this match and I'll flatten it. I did it once, and tonight with a title on the line, I've got to do it again. Vince, I'm with five-time WWF champion Bret Hart. And Bret, this may be your toughest title defense since you won the title at SummerSlam. Not only are you taking on a man who already owns a victory over you, but you're going out into enemy territory. You don't have a friend out there. You know what this says? This says World Wrestling Federation. It's not the American Federation. It's the World Wrestling Federation. And I might not have any fans here in America anymore, but that's because American wrestling fans don't know what a hero is. Now, the way I look at things, I may be going in this match against a guy that everybody loves, but that's fine. Because everything I do in this match, I do to the fans themselves. That's, I don't see anybody in particular. I just see all those American wrestling fans that turned their backs on me a long time ago. Well, I'm gonna give one shot for every single one of you. And as far as the World Wrestling Federation Championship belt changing hands, I wouldn't bet on it. I'm gonna kick the crap out of this guy and I'm gonna enjoy doing it. And that's all I gotta say. That's the champion, Bret Hart, back to ringside. He beat him once so he can do it again. So he says it, he repeats the same line, and that's about it. Kurt Angle's future theme hits and it's the Olympic champion. No, just kidding. It's Del Wilkes who comes out to... A subdued reaction, but um, this feud didn't have much heat because it was just, hey, we need a guy that wears stars and stripes to fight Bret Hart. Had Luger been in the company, this would have been perfect for him. Had Jim Duggan still been in the company, this would have been perfect. They probably thought about using Sergeant Slaughter. Uh, They were very short on top-level baby faces at this time. Uh, Austin is hurt, plus you're saving him for something more. Don't know where Ken Shamrock was. I think Ken Shamrock would have been a good choice here if they wanted to go with someone, someone that's American. If that if that's the bare minimum, uh, we need an American who's a babyface. Plus they have heat from WrestleMania 13 that they could have gone into, but instead they went out into the free agent market and brought Del Wilkes in, which... Look, it's fine. It's fine. Unfortunately, it didn't work out too good because I thought this match, as we'll see, kind of stunk. But they didn't have a lot of choices here. Undertaker was tied up with Shawn Michaels. I don't know where. I don't know Ahmed Johnson's hurt. Vader. I mean, where is where is your top level babyface right now in this company? In September of '97. I couldn't tell you who it was outside of Stone Cold Steve Austin. And he was hurt, so he wouldn't be doing it. I mean, you could have thrown, I guess, Dude Love into this. Was he a face? I don't remember. I know he eventually was bad, evil, paired with Mr. McMahon, Dude Love. But I don't... I think he was a good guy here. Was Was Dude Love ever a fan favorite? I don't know. So I don't really know what else you could have done here, and you need an opponent for Brett. Undertaker was already paired with him for the British pay-per-view. 
And first he needed to handle things with, with Sean over the, the chair shot at SummerSlam. So this is really the best idea they could come up with. And Jim Duggan, sorry, he was in WCW. Lex Luger, WCW. All the other American... Uh, Kurt Angle just got out of the Olympics, still not ready to come to the WWF yet, still celebrating his gold medal win somewhere in Pittsburgh. So Mark Henry, we we, we saw him debut. I, he's not quite ready for this kind of spot. He's, um, you know, I he's in the nation at this point. I so I there's really Del Wilkes was the guy. Hey. Sometimes you just happen to be in the right place at the right time, and a guy named the Patriot is perfect for an anti-American storyline villain. And so that's what we have here. Cole is with Brett. Brett doesn't care that he's in America, and America doesn't know what a wrestling hero is, and he's going to kick the crap out of this guy and enjoy doing it. Which is funny that he doesn't even mention Del Wilkes by his name or by the Patriot. Uh, Del Wilkes and Brett trade blows to start the match. Brett hits a belly-to-back. Patriot gets put in the tree of woe, and Brett stomps at him. Patriot finally lands a drop kick to slow the hitman down, clotheslines him out of the ring. Patriot puts on a wrist lock and takes Brett down to deliver some knees to Brett's arm, and then he just holds onto that wrist lock. Finally, he just gives it up. Brett finally's had enough and starts stomping at Patriot's legs and working them over, getting them... Loosened up for the sharpshooter. Lawler goes over the history of Del Wilkes in WWF, which is hilarious because he doesn't know anything else about him. You know, he, the, WWF for a long time didn't acknowledge that wrestling existed out of WWF. So all Lawler does is go through like the four matches that he's had in the last month or so in the WWF. So this rundown was quite funny. He doesn't mention. Stars and Stripes. He doesn't mention AWA, which Jerry Lawler was the AWA champion at one point. So <laughs> it's just funny that Vince says, uh, "What do you know about uh, the his? What do you know about the history of uh, the Patriot here?" And Jerry Lawler gives him uh, last month's results. Basically, Patriot just hobbles around the ring while Brett just keeps attacking his legs. Figure four on the buckle to the Patriot from Brett. The British Bulldog comes out to watch the party. I guess he was getting bored backstage. This gets Austin chances. They want Stone Cold to run in and clean house on Brett and Bulldog. Backbreaker to Patriot from Brett. They would not be getting Austin again tonight. Patriot finally lands some offense when he hits a snap suplex to Brett. A sunset flip from Patriot for a two count followed by a DDT for a near fall. Patriot forgets about selling his leg now that Brett had been working over for at least five minutes. Patriot attempts a clothesline, but Bulldog trips him. Brett tries an O'Connor roll for a near fall. But then more miscommunication with the Hart Foundation as Brett gets knocked into Bulldog. An inside cradle from Patriot and the crowd nearly bought this finish. An uncle slam, which is Jinder Mahal's coloss, or like a full Nelson slam. But Bulldog breaks up the cover. Vader then runs down and helps Patriot attack Brett and Bulldog. The ref lets this go for some reason. Clear clear interference is let go. As I guess the ref is very pro-America. Vader runs Bulldog off. I guess Owen was nowhere to be found either. Or Pillman. Well, Pillman had run off of Marlena. So Owen just said I, he was recovering from a stunner, I guess. 
Patriot big boots Brett, scoop slams him, and then goes to the top rope for a shoulder tackle. This gets a near fall. Atomic drop into a belly-to-back uh, by Del Wilkes, but Brett kicks out at two. Brett then bulldogs Patriot, hits his second rope elbow drop for a near fall. The ref accidentally gets elbowed by Patriot. Another uncle slam, but there's no ref to count. By the time a ref does finally count, Brett gets a foot on the ropes. USA chance for Patriot. Del Wilkes tries a sharpshooter on Brett, but Brett grabs Patriot's ankle to reverse it. What did this remind you of? Well, it reminded me of what Brett planned to do at Survivor Series 97. Shawn Michaels, it's exactly what he was going to do at Survivor Series 97, where he he was going to grab Shawn's ankle and reverse it into a sharpshooter. And that's when the DQ was supposed to happen, but we all know what happened at Survivor Series 97. Brett grabs Patriot's ankle to reverse it, so he puts on the sharpshooter. Patriot is right at the ropes. I mean, if he reached out, he could touch the ropes. But it's too much for Del Wilkes, and the and the Patriot verbally submits, and that's it. I'm surprised they didn't let the Patriot pass out or something but I guess they didn't have any long-term plans for Del Wilkes. No no reason to protect the Patriot. And they also didn't want to let him have the same finish that Stone Cold Steve Austin did at WrestleMania 13 because then you're just watering down that everyone's so tough. Uh, no one's as tough as Stone Cold Steve Austin, so you, everyone can't pass out in the sharpshooter. After the match, Brett beats down the Patriot, pile drives him, Grabs Old Glory and breaks it over the buckle. Oh, despicable. Then he uses the flag to choke out the Patriot. The ref just tells Brett, hey, knock it off. Knock it off, man. And eventually he does. More Austin chants. Fellow Canadian Pat Patterson takes a shot from Brett, which was funny. Brett kicks Del Wilkes a few more times before heading to the back. He's had enough. He's seen enough. He's done enough. He's stomped a mud hole and walked it dry. And then Del Wilkes just walks to the back with Brett's music still playing. So no hero shot, no heat to be regained. That's just it. He gets a loser's walk to the back. And man, this was a very disappointing match to me. Not so much on Del Wilkes' part, but on Brett's part. Because I expect a lot more from Brett Hart with opponents that I'm not going to say... Del Wilkes was unqualified or or not on... Well, he's definitely not on Bret Hart's level. I will say that. He's not a technical wizard like Bret the Hitman Hart. But typically, Bret can take bad wrestlers, bad in-ring performers like Kevin Nash and make good matches out of them. And for whatever reason tonight, he didn't do that. And I don't know if it's because he was playing a heel. I don't know if it's because he was pissed off at the company pissed off that Sean was headlining and he wasn't, pissed off he was paired with the Patriot, pissed off about everything. I don't know if it was all that anger seeping through or if it was just Brett saying, this is an in-your-house pay-per-view, I'm booked to win, no one cares, the feud's not hot, I'm not going to put that much effort into it. And then on the other hand, you get Del Wilkes and you would think that Del Wilkes would rise to this occasion. This is his big moment. This is a world title match. In the WWF, even though they were at this point still the they were the number two company compared to WCW, but still this is the big time. This is a title match 
in what is now the number one wrestling company in the world, and he didn't really bring his best to it. But at the same time, he was mainly a tag team specialist. When you go through the history of Del Wilkes' wrestling career, it's a lot of tag team matches, a lot of tag team partners, tag team titles. It's not a lot of singles glory, so to expect more from him is a little unfair. Um, It was strange how he disappeared completely after this because, like I said, they needed baby faces. He did stick around for a little while longer, but it was so strange because it was like he was there one second and gone the next, and his mask would show up in the WWF video games like Warzone and Attitude and, like, even some of the SmackDown and Raw games, I'm I'm sure I'm pretty sure his mask shows up in those games. So it's like he did exist. Like I do know that this happened, you know, but it seemed like he was just totally erased. This this feud and match were just totally dropped from history, from the WWF's retelling of history, and I I don't really know why. I get I mean I guess they weren't too satisfied with the outcome of this match and that. Uh, Del Wilkes didn't stick around. It did happen. It's the it's the biggest moment in Del Wilkes' career, uh, at least in in pro wrestling. His collegiate career definitely out, outshined his pro wrestling career as far as football and and playing for the Gamecocks and stuff. Yeah, a pretty disappointing match for both Brett and and Patriots. So. Um, not not very good, and not in the main event spot. There's still one match to go here. Uh, but before we get to that, Brett tells Michael Cole all the Americans are losers. America better get used to the fact that they're nothing but losers. They're all losers. Steve Austin, loser. Undertaker, loser. Shawn Michaels, loser. And that Patriot to the list. There's nothing but losers. All the losers in the world are in the World Wrestling Federation, and they're all American. Figure that one out. That's right. The only winners are going to be the United Kingdom and Canada who are going to win this war against the United States of America. I can bank on it. I'll say one thing, at least in the UK, they respect great wrestlers like us. That's right. And at least in the UK, they respect great wrestlers like us. Uh, Because Bulldog was standing near him. Uh, And that's where the next show is going to be, is that that UK show, where he fought The Undertaker in a very good match. So he he came back the next time when they were on pay-per-view with a very good match. Well, it was a UK-only pay-per-view, but... You see what I'm saying. Time for Undertaker versus Sean. First time ever. JR voices over an Undertaker recap package, which has the origins of the Kane story. That's right. Paul Bear teasing Taker's dark secret. And Taker giving a sort of almost an out-of-character interview, even though he's dressed up as Undertaker. He's sitting in front of candles. It's very strange because he's speaking in Mark Calloway's voice in his Undertaker garb, talking about his dark past, but not 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 confessing to trying to murder his brother alive. No, uh, that that's that part is is skipped over. Maybe because they hadn't written that part yet, but also because they they want to save that. They show Michael screwing over Undertaker at SummerSlam and then destroying him on Raw. Shawn Michaels is chewing gum backstage, which usually indicates to me that Shawn is um, probably. On something, He says he's too jacked up to rest, and he doesn't rest in peace for anybody. He says there's only one guy that can beat him, and it's him. So Shawn Michaels claims the only person that can beat him is Shawn Michaels. But what about those Marines that beat him up outside the bar? <laughs> so I, I don't... 
I think Sean's a little off on this. And all the other people that beat him in wrestling, like Marty Jannetty, people have beat Shawn Michaels before. I don't think Sean's being very truthful here. He has persevered through extreme punishment, both physical and mental. But despite all the torture, he has remained focused and able to channel his energy forward while controlling his rage. I've always been proud of myself that uh, whether people liked me or they didn't like me or they agreed with my views or, or not, that I stood up for what I believed in. And for years, you know, I hid behind the death mask because of the torment and the, and the, and the grief that I held inside for what happened. You know, I live with that every day and I will live with it for the rest of my existence in this world. But Shawn Michaels has challenged his patience and reshaped his desire. For the pure purpose of being irritating, because I know it causes controversy. Controversy causes everything else. First, Michaels sabotaged his title defense. And then to add injury to insult, with malice and without warning, Michaels hammered the phenom in unspeakable fashion. The Undertaker has clearly had enough. When the blood flowed, I took the blood and I signed your death warrant with it. At ground zero, you're gonna pay and you're gonna pay the ultimate price. Shawn Michaels, you will rest in peace. All right, Shawn Michaels. Based upon the temperament of this capacity crowd, I would suggest that they're very much looking forward to you getting your rear end kicked by the Undertaker. <laughs> and you'd like to see that, wouldn't you? Well, guess what? I'm too jacked up to rest. Everybody knows I haven't slept in the last 13 years. I've been in this business, and I got news for you, Undertaker. I don't rest in peace for anybody, and especially you, big man. The phenom of the World Wrestling Federation, the mystique, the legend of The Undertaker is going to come to an end tonight and in your house in Louisville. Why? Because the Heartbreak Kid says so. And there's only one guy that can do it, and it's me. Why? Because I can, for God's sake. Sean comes out strutting out of the In Your House set, and he's sort of mouthing his theme song. And this is where I can really tell that he might be under the influence, because I, I've never recalled seeing him mouthing his theme song before actually singing along to a song that he sings on the track anyway and then sean throws a classic sean michaels 90s fit 
because the fireworks don't go off when he wanted them to. They go off when the song restarts and they're slow, so he's already done with his pose by the time they're going off. And even Vince remarks, well, things aren't starting off very well for Shawn Michaels here tonight. Undertaker's theme hits. It's still the old early 90s theme and not his guitar rock version. I fast forwarded through his entrance, which takes forever. It's teardrop era Taker here. Michaels hides behind the ref to start the match. Taker decks the ref. Sean Bales wants to leave. Slaughter comes out, sends him back, says, no, you've, you've got to wrestle. You're under contract. Taker throws the ref out onto Sean, like uses the ref as a dart. Then they brawl up the ramp. Sean tries to leave through the in-your-house door, but it won't open. See, the wrestlers were coming out of a curtain to the side, not the in-your-house door, so the door is fake. Taker press slams him onto the stage and then throws him into the ferns. He punches Sean, who rolls all the way down the ramp towards the ring, which is hilarious Shawn Michaels bumping here. Taker chokes him with uh, camera cables. They brawl towards the French announce table. He finally gets Sean in the ring, but tosses him right back out again. Slaughter finds Earl Hebner to finally send a new ref out. Sean sneaks in, chop blocks Undertaker. The match officially starts. That's right, all this happened before the bell. Taker knocks Sean right out of the ring again. Taker blocks a sunset flip. Choke throws Sean to the corner. Kicks to Sean in the buckle, who does his super selling that eventually ends with him getting crotched on the ropes. You know, when he gets kicked in the buckle and he soars 20 feet in the air. I'm exaggerating, but it's still one of the... The dumbest Shawn Michaels bumps that he takes. I know he's a great seller, but I, I've i never enjoyed those those corner kick sailing into the air shit that he does. Taker tries old school, but Shawn crotches him and knocks him out of the ring. Baseball slides, sends Taker to the ramp. Shawn tries a Pescado to Taker, who catches him instead, rams him back first into the post. Big back body drop to Shawn, who has spent most of this match selling for Taker. Shawn gets his ass out here. He loves this spot. As Taker grabs him by the tights, Sean slows down Taker for a bit with a swinging neck breaker, but Taker beats him to his feet. Sean goes and grabs a chair. Ah, I might as well just hit him with a chair. Taker stops him with a big boot, then Taker grabs the chair, but Earl stops him. Sean drop kicks Taker into Earl with the chair. Sean lands his big elbow drop from across the ring, hits it again. There's no ref to count after these elbow drops. Rick Rude walks out. Earl finally wakes up. Does a slow count, and Taker kicks out but flings Sean onto Earl, so Earl gets knocked out again. Rude gives Sean some brass knucks, and he decks Taker, but there's no ref to count. Another ref comes out, and Taker kicks out at two. As Hunter and China come out, Sean throws that ref out of the ring. Hunter then gets some shots in on Taker while all the refs are down. China helps Hunter fling Taker into the steps. Hunter, China, and Sean all take turns beating down Taker. Sean has a cut under his eye from something. Taker looks for a tombstone, gets countered, sweet chin music countered, choke slam countered. Taker then takes the brass knucks, which Vince thought that Taker took Sean's navel piercing out, which, why would he do that, Vince? Uh, no, he reached into Sean's tights and took the brass knucks out. Earl finally wakes up and gets a two count before Sean kicks out even after the knucks. Tim White finally runs out, calls the whole thing off after Earl takes another ref bump. Taker then takes down DX before Sean super kicks him, gets him tied up in the ropes. Tim White gets decked by Hunter. Taker fights off DX all by his lonesome, 
and Hunter is the recipient of the tombstone. Gerald Briscoe takes a bump. Then the locker room runs out to calm down Taker, but Taker escapes, dives out onto most of his Bone Street crew guys for some reason were there to catch him. I guess he didn't trust the click to catch him. And Shawn Michaels with his suicide dive. And then everyone gets broken up. Everyone leaves, leaving Taker in the ring to pose after the match to delight the crowd, even though this match was garbage. Wow, it was a lot of interference. Way too much interference, but of course... You need to you need to keep the interest up for a rematch, which is fine. Which is the reason that this shouldn't have been the main event. Brett and Patriots should have been the main event because that was their one match. That was it. That was the the culmination of their feud. This is still the the midway point of Undertaker and Shawn Michaels. Not even the midway point because they would continue this on to the Royal Rumble of '98. They had bad blood and hell in a cell uh, in October, and they continued it into the Royal Rumble. So this was not stopping anytime soon between Sean and Undertaker. So I think that should have been um, the second to last match. I think the world title should have headlined here, even though even if the match still stunk like it did, this match wasn't any better. Way too much interference. Too many refs taking bumps. I don't understand why they why they made this a, a thing. I don't recall if, if this was when the refs went on strike. I don't don't really remember how many times the refs have gone on strike over being bumped too many times. It was silly. There was no Paul Bear, no hint of Kane, which is probably good that they saved that for October with Hell in a Cell. But there was no hint of that. There, there could have at least been, you know, an earned shot or something from Paul Bear. Uh, you know, I, I, I don't know. It, it didn't do anything to advance Undertaker's storyline. It didn't solve anything with, with Sean. But that was the point. But this is pay-per-view. And pay-per-views are sort of for payoffs. And so I think if you're going to have a continuing storyline, you shouldn't put that in your main event spot. Have the If you have a feud that is culminating, like Patriot and Brett, that should have gone on last. So there you have it. That is Ground Zero in Your House 1997, a name that would definitely never come back in the WWF naming department after certain events happened in September of 2001. I don't think they'll be using the term Ground Zero um, ever again. But overall, this was a pretty bad card, pretty weak offering from the WWF. Not a lot. To say about it positively, I can think of a few negative things to say, but it was um, good at advancing the Pillman and Goldust storyline. I thought that was really, like I said, it was the hottest feud coming in. It continued, um, but we all know, unfortunately, what happened in the end with that. And so there you have it. Uh, If I can find it, I'll leave you with a bit of the interview that Austin had with Del Wilkes, uh, who passed away June 30th at the age of 59 from a heart attack. And so that's why I wanted to cover this show just as an extra. I will eventually be back with that ECW review. Talks about another wrestler that passed away from a heart attack, New Jack. November to remember 2000, that's the next official uh, RWP 
review with Patrick, and that'll be out soon. Until then, I'm intern Alex. Bingo, bingo. Well, I had gone up and worked for Vince up in the early 90s, maybe hmm. 91, 92. I went out on the road for a while. Uh, Rick Martell was hurt. They needed somebody to fill a spot. So um, I'd already you know, known Vince and been around Vince and worked for Vince back then. Uh, so uh, Jim Ross, who I was friends with and knew very well, and Bruce Pritchard, who you mentioned before. And Bruce had gone to Vince and said, look, man, you know, we were to bring Dale in. And I think we could do a lot with him. Uh, he's shown that he's worked all over the world and he's had success wherever he's been. So uh, uh, Bruce called me and said, look, man, Vince wants to talk to you. They FedExed me the ticket and I flew up and had a long talk with Vince. And uh, he, uh, you're exactly right. He wasn't that thrilled about the idea of a masked man. He just felt like at that point in time uh, in the wrestling industry and in the climate of the wrestling industry, that people just would not buy into a mask man. And I said, well, Vince, I said, I, I totally disagree with you. I said, look at the success I had in WCW, you know, two-time tag team, tag team champs there. I said, look at the success I had in Global. And I said, even more, look at the success I had in all Japan. I said, so this is a very popular, well-known character worldwide. And I think I could have the same success here. And he sort of begrudgingly agreed with me to let me do what I wanted to do. Uh, I was one of the few guys, that, uh, and you think about this, one of the few guys that ever went to work with for Vince that came in with, with his own gimmick uh, that Vince did not create. Uh, yeah. Vince usually likes to create the character and create the gimmick, yeah. and then that way he owns it as well. Yeah. But he did not create that. I went in with my own character. I kept that character. And obviously, it didn't take Vince long to realize the response I was getting at TV, uh, the response I was getting on the road, that it was a character that the people could latch on to, had an emotional investment in, and a character that was over with the people because it wasn't but a few short weeks later that uh, he came to me about the idea of uh, doing the Bret Hart angle, the uh, uh, America versus Canada angle. So uh, I think he saw that it was still uh, a worthwhile character. Definitely. And uh, yeah, you come to the, uh, the the angle with Brett, and like for anybody that hasn't seen it, I'd strongly recommend uh, watching the match with uh, the Patriots and Brett Hart at Ground Zero. For me, I think it's one of the, at least for what I love out of wrestling, it's definitely in the top ten of displaying what proper pro wrestling I think should be. There was such a really good heel babyface, good versus evil dynamic with great actual technical work then as well. So um, just talk a little bit about the memories of uh, working with Brett at the time. Well, it was a, it was a pleasure working with Brett. Uh, Brett's a pro's pro. Uh, we know the background of the family and how he came up and, and the influence that the Hart family has had throughout pro wrestling for decades and decades. And um, one thing I always liked, it's... Um, I took my job very seriously. I didn't get in the ring to make people laugh. Uh, I didn't want to do funny spots. I didn't want to do comedy spots. I wanted people to look at this as, 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 as a believable athletic contest. Mm -hmm. And that just fit right in with the way Brett felt and the, right, the way Brett did business. 
And I felt like our styles really meshed well together. And honestly, I thought it was just an extension of what I've been doing in all Japan for all those years. It was a rather snug style, which I'm fine with. I don't mind snugness in the ring. Uh, I like it. I think it makes it look better. It makes the product look better, more believable. And Brett, uh, you know, was cut out of the same cloth. And so it was just a natural fit. And then just the storyline itself was just natural. I mean, here's the, the, the face of the company that all of a sudden this Canadian that was really liked by the WWF fan base has now turned on America and he's trashing America and he's calling Americans awful names and saying bad things about this country. And then walks a guy that is literally draped in the flag called the Patriot. And he's standing up for the American way. He's ready to take on that evil Canadian uh, who, as a matter of fact, that evil Canadian has to leave his own country to come to America to make his living. But yet he's bad mouthing this country and putting the boots to this country. So just uh, everything about the, the, the angle and the program fit and it worked well. And uh, I enjoyed it. We had a lot of fun doing it together. Let's jump right into the thick of things, Dale, because you hear so many things, you know, when you get out of the business and, uh, you know, I've watched so many of your interviews. You talked about uh, how many of the the guys that you and I both knew and you could count maybe 40, 50 of them, even more of guys that met their demise, you know, just a little bit heavy duty on the pills, a uh, combination of being a rock star, which you alluded to in some of your interviews uh, and so the fact that uh, we're both uh, still sitting here and able to talk about it, but uh, when I got the word on the street, you had hit a real bad place. And I had Manson, Dale was taking 40 or 50 painkillers a day. And I'm thinking, holy smokes, that's an incredible amount. But Dale, according to the interviews I've been listening to, you were taking double that amount. You, you said in one interview, you were taking up to 120 pills a day. Now, is that a straight up shoot? Yeah, that's a straight up shoot. And Steve, the amazing thing about it, that was just the pain pills. That did not count the somas, the Xanax, the Halcyon, the Valium I would take at night to try to knock myself out because I think anyone that's had any experience with addiction to pain medication knows that it actually acts as, as something that gives you energy. It really makes you going. It makes you wide open. It just gives you an enormous amount of energy. And uh, so at night to be able to sleep, I had to knock myself out with any number of other pills that I could get my hands on or, or throw down my throat. But those 120, that was just the pain pills. That wasn't the other pills combined with it. I would take I would take 15 to 20 pain pills at a time and chew them up and wash them down. I would just chew them up and get them in a powder form where they would take effect a lot quicker. But, uh, yeah, I was doing 120 of those a day. Okay, now you were riding down the road, uh, and you were talking to Kurt Henning, and you had a bum elbow the size of a grapefruit, and you were talking about, man, it's hard to work with this thing. And Kurt asked you, what are you taking? And you said, well, a couple of goodies, you know, that old powdered aspirin type thing. And he kind of laughed at you. And then uh, so he smartened you up. Well, he enlightened you to the fact that there was pain pills that were prescription grade, you know, Vicodin, Percocet, uh, stuff like that. And so that, that was a start. And you took a couple of pain pills to get you down the road. How in the world, Dale, did, did it turn into the number that you ended up taking? Because, Dale, I was more 
Now, let me talk about myself here for a second. I was more of a uh, hung with the drinking crowd. I had my Vicodins, mm-hmm. had a couple of perks. Uh, I'd take, you know, two Vikes with a cup of coffee to get up in the morning. And, and, uh, I was like a light switch. I had to turn on and then I had to use something to turn off. And that's a straight up shoot. That's the way I was. But I didn't get deep into the pills. Although I took my share, I was that whiskey guy. When you're drinking about a fifth of whiskey every single night, you can go to sleep with about that 30 milligrams of Ambien. I ain't recommending it to nobody, but that's the that's the road I was going on. When I hear you dropping 15 bikes of perks at a time, dude, how does that light you up? What does it make you feel like? Well, euphoric, happy. You know, I was under the impression before Kurt smartened me up, and, and I've shared this uh, in my testimony and, and in my story, that I was under the impression that if I took any type of pain medication that it would make me goofy, it would make me groggy, it would make me want to fall asleep, but it did the exact opposite to me. It was like rocket fuel, man, and it lit me up, and I was wide open. And those first two that I took, innocently enough, the night Kurt gave them to me, just to be able to get through a match, just to be able to work and to do what I was paid to do at the level that I needed to do it at. It took a while, but it eventually led to, you know, 15, 20 at a time. And you build a tolerance up to those things. And um, it just continued for me. It just got where two wasn't enough, and then four at a time wasn't enough, and six wasn't enough. And, you know, if I if I didn't have what I felt I needed, and I had to bomb some from somebody, I, I took it as an insult if they could only give me five or six, because I knew that wasn't near enough to get me through and, and to allow me to, to do what I needed to do. And here's the thing, going back, I'm, I'm not, I'm, I'm just kind of smiling about the situation, because back in the day, and I'm, I'm speaking for the crowd, or, or, or myself, I'm speaking to a, a, a circle of guys that I hung with, I don't want to uh, paint everybody with the same brush, but uh, for the guys that, that were using and pain pills, you know, there, you always wanted to help a brother out, but by the same token, you had to, to maintain control of your stash because that was what you had, you know, for yourself. So when all of a sudden you, you know, you got one of those guys like you, uh, hey man, you know, five or six here, five or six there, five or six, you know, down the road, it's kind of like, oh, come on, man. And you know, you could hear a guy throw his backpack or his fanny pack on and you could, you could, you could tell Dell, and I'm sure you could back me on this. You could tell by the rattle of the pills in that bag of what he was carrying. Could you not? Oh, absolutely. That was, I mean, you're, you get a trained ear. You, I mean, you, you're like a bird dog. You know how a bird dog pops his head up and that tail pops up? I mean, you hear that rattle and you know, you know who's carrying and who's not. And uh, the one thing I always made sure of, and it was more important to me than my boots or my mask or my tights, was that I had enough pills with me. And, um, and, and, and I had a buddy of mine that lived out in California and he'd go across the water into Mexico and you could buy the Somas and the Halcyons and the Valium and the Xanax. You could get those over the counter without a prescription. And then I was working the doctors uh, for the prescriptions to the pain pills and, and, and running from pharmacy to pharmacy here in Columbia before I would hit the road. But uh, listen, I'd much rather have left the house without my trunks and my boots and the left without my medicine bag. <laughs> 